Hey there, this is Will Gadara, and thank you so much for tuning in. Today represents the beginning of a new season for this podcast, but, well, this new season is bigger than just the podcast. We announced this a little while ago, but this begins the new Welcome Conference, or at least 2020's version of the Welcome Conference. Listen, we had an amazing conference planned at Lincoln Center for back in June. We had amazing speakers. We were super excited, and then, like so many of us, This year, we had to just resign ourselves to the fact that it wasn't meant to be. And so we spent months trying to figure out what to do instead. And that's where this came from. Because we figured that rather than one day of in-person connection, we could create something wherein there were five months of digital connection. And so that begins now. We've created this platform. It's free for anyone to sign up for. Just go to welcomeconference.org. And on that platform, there's going to be content this podcast, obviously, but also industry panels, virtual pre-shifts by some of the best dining room operators in the country, some keynote speeches, and much more. And this month, October, the theme of that digital conference is grit. Every month, we're going to be focusing on something that we believe our industry needs to embrace, embody, lean into in order to not only survive through this, but thrive on the other side of this. It's under the overarching theme of reinvention, but we're starting with grit for all the obvious reasons. I've heard many, many quotes about grit, but the one that perhaps sticks out to me the most is one that was on a plaque that my dad gave me when I was a kid. And it's a Calvin Coolidge quote. I'm gonna read it to you now. Nothing in this world can take the place of persistence. Talent will not. Nothing is more common than unsuccessful men with talent. Genius will not. Unrewarded genius is almost a proverb. Education will not. The world is full of educated derelicts. Persistence and determination alone are omnipotent. I can't stop thinking about that now. Well, I haven't been able to stop thinking about that since March when so many of the things we're trying to overcome, whether it's in pursuing federal relief or just keeping our doors open another day, trying to give jobs back to the millions of people in our industry that have lost them, doing everything we can to keep our businesses alive, forging forward, reinventing ourselves, all of that, it requires two things, persistence and determination. For me, those are the two things that even on the days where it feels the most difficult to get up, well, those are the things that get me out of bed and compel me to fight harder than I did the day before. And for me, that's the definition of grit. And we're going to hear some stories today. My goodness. That show the power of it. And, and honestly, this interview, it gave me not only catharsis, but strength and I don't know, hearing the story of someone that you feel, you know, is so relatable and that they overcame something that felt so insanely impossible to overcome, well, it gave me hope. I really hope you enjoy. Welcome back to Weekly Specials. It's the Weekly Specials. You do, 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 do. Weekly
I'm excited to welcome my next guest, who has made a career out of ice cream since 1996. Jenny Brittenbauer is known as a pioneer in the artisan ice cream world and has been the owner of her namesake ice cream brand, Jenny's Splendid Ice Creams, since 2002. Since then, she's opened more than 40 scoop shops, placed her pints in thousands of freezer aisles, published cookbooks, won awards, been named one of Fast Company's most creative people, and navigated some incredibly challenging times in the business along the way. You talk about grit, Jenny's got it. Jenny, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. You know, it's funny. You and I have like kind of known each other, but this is probably the longest conversation we will have ever had uh, to date or definitively the longest conversation. And it's one of the beautiful things about challenging times is it can bring people closer. And so with everything that you're navigating through it, I, I just appreciate you taking the time. Yes, um, absolutely. I also think it's what's great about hospitality is that it brings us together. Like somehow, you know, our paths were crossing out in the world and we would sort of see each other here and there. And then in times of, of crisis, when we all have to come together, we know we, we're there. For sure. So, okay. This is all about grit. Every month over the next five months, we're focusing on a theme within the general theme of reinvention. This is a time when our industry needs to reinvent itself for a ton of different reasons. And we're focusing on things that we believe we need to embody not only to survive the season ahead, but to thrive on the other side of it. And focusing on that first part, we all need more grit now than ever before. And the more I've learned about you and your story, I've always been inspired and amazed by what you've built. But man, you talk about grit. Like there's so many stories in your career that show incredible doses of it. And so I want to talk about those things. But I always like to just think about the definition of words. When you hear that word grit, what does it mean to you? Well, the first thing I think of is that you're going to get it one way or another. Like, you know, you are going to get grit. It's going to find you. That's what life is about. And it's about sort of falling down and getting back up and learning to trust yourself. And so when you do that enough, they call it grit, but it really is just learning to trust yourself. It's learning to trust yourself to get out of any any of the challenges that come your way. I'm a very visual thinker, so I often think about being on a sea voyage. I actually am not. Like, I don't live by any water, really. Um, <laughs> but... You know, I watch a lot of movies, you know, with like pirates in them and things like that. And, you know, adventure movies or whatever. I always imagine that like, uh, it's, you know, it's like trusting yourself to get out and be an explorer and trust what's over the horizon and trust your body and the, the vessel you're on, you know, to know what's right to get through it. And if you don't, you'll learn. So I kind of just sort of feel like grit is um, inevitable. So allow it and feel proud of it. You know what I mean? Yes. It's so, that I mean sort of idea of resilience. Well, I love that. And by the way, one of the things I would do uh, in pre-shift meetings with my team is I always make sports metaphors in spite of the fact that I don't really know anything <laughs> about sports. So. <laughs> no, but I do too. That's so funny. I'm, you know, I, I agree. It's, yeah, it's sports and um, I do know enough about sci-fi and fantasy. So that's where I always go to. There's always a lesson in um, The Lord of the Rings or Star Trek just so many, of course, Star Wars, you can always come back to, remember that time in like the Princess Bride, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I love that. That's what they were talking about. Okay, so moments where I've seen you display extraordinary resilience, persistence, determination, and I wanna dig into one of them, but okay, you 
didn't want to take the SATs. You got rejected from college and you were like, no, I don't accept this. And you wrote a letter saying, I want to get in. And you got in. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, and not only that, but it was in pencil on notebook paper. I mean, I had a, (laughs) I didn't have a computer at the time, but I could have gone to the library and typed it or, you know, whatever. Yeah. You know, I mean, I just felt like it wasn't right that they had made the wrong decision, (laughs) (laughs) but that they didn't understand who I was and that I was not just doing nothing in school. I was working at a French bakery that I loved very much. I actually loved it much more than school. Uh, My mother had had a baby. Uh, My father was out of our lives and I was busy. And also I passed. So that was actually a really good story. So I explained that to them and, um, and they changed their mind, which was really great. Then I had to actually learn how to be in school because I hadn't, I'd moved every year growing up and really never learned to do homework. My mom is not a very big homework. She would never liked homework. She just was always against the teachers and so on. And so I had to learn all of that stuff when I got to Ohio State University and I did, and I loved it there. I think right there, and this is super early in your life, obviously, but a lot of people would look at that as being something so outside of their control <clears throat> that they might as well just give up and move on to their plan B. But there is something, there's something in you that says, no, this is not outside of my control. Yeah, I always, I mean, even now when we're designing a flavor or when we're doing art and design to go with it, we always have to push it beyond the boundary to the last minute or, you know, the last bit and then one step over. Otherwise, I feel like you don't know where the boundary is. And I always feel like I have to get to that place. And so um, honestly, even just on Sunday, there's a whole other thing in my life and I had been given a hard no about, and I'm like, you know what, but I'm just going to try it again. And I got it, you know? So I just feel like, you know, probably a lot of people in my life get annoyed with me because it's not over until it's actually over, you know, till it's completely gone, I guess. I will just keep trying. Well, Especially and- if I think there's any kind of injustice involved or that it's not right or, you know, something like that. Well, which is... I mean, that's kind of a theme of the world right now, which is Mm -hmm. people getting knocked down and trying to find the courage to get back up. I never knew, by the way, until I like did a deep dive on you. You had an ice cream company. It was called Scream. And then it failed. And or you or you called it quits, whatever the the right language is to use there. Both. (laughs) And, and (laughs) And then you started again. And I think a lot of people right now are in a position where they worked really, really hard to start something and they gave everything. And they're looking on the horizon and realizing that they're going to have to start again. And so, yeah, did that feel insane to you? Like the idea of starting all over again? And where did you find the strength for that? Well, I did walk away from Scream Ice Cream with the idea that I was done. I had burned out. I worked every day for like, you know, 10 hours a day. I only had Mondays off for four years. And I really had hit the wall. I mean, I felt like the business wasn't really working. I hadn't found my stride. We didn't have enough customers to make it work. And so I left that thinking that I was going to go back to school and never go back into ice cream. But within a few months, I mean, our community, this is one great thing about living in Columbus or, you know, a smaller community, whatever that means for you, whether it's your sort of district or neighborhood or area where you kind of know people, like when you walk down the street, you just like, you know, I used to walk home from work and say hi to everybody on my way home from work. And like, they knew me as like the ice cream girl back then. And so they didn't want to let that go. And so I was out in the community just going and having drinks at a bar, going for dinner, and people wouldn't let it go. They were just wanting to know when we were going to open back up. And I didn't have an answer for them. And what happened was actually, I still thought that I was doing everything right. Like I thought that everybody was going to, like I could make whatever flavors I wanted to every day at Scream, more like an artist sort of things, just like creating whatever, you know? 
whatever's available, whatever whim I'm on, whatever I want. And that everybody really excited about it. And I really just thought that that was such a great idea, but just, you know, ahead of its time or something, you know, you always hear um, entrepreneurs <laughs> saying that. So it was when I was at a coffee shop that was out of this thing. The whole reason that I was there was this orange scone that they did. And it was just off the hook. It was so good. And I only had five bucks. I mean, I was living very leanly and I was going to go there and get the scone and a cup of coffee. And I had a Vogue magazine. I was going to spend the whole day just doing that. And they were out of the scone and they didn't care. I had waited in line to get up there. And when I got up to the front, they did not care. It was just like, you know, what do you want? Like we got people here. And I, backed away and left. I remember this moment so crystal clear when I walked out the door, I was like walking through that precipice. It hit me like a ton of bricks that I was disappointing all of my customers at Scream that you would fall in love with salty caramel or pistachio and honey. And when you came back and brought all your friends to get it, that not having it was like, you know, sort of like the sin, the biggest sin of an entrepreneur. Right. Mm -hmm. And I realized whenever I go anywhere to anyone's business, the first thing I want is the last thing I had. And maybe I'll change my mind when I get here, but you got to have that at least. Yeah. And so that idea of like, it's always kind of in the back of your head and you can always kind of be sort of working on these problems, solving them going forward. And once I figured that out, that plus the idea that there were people here who still wanted me to be in business, I just started working on a plan immediately. And it sort of reinvigorated my fire, you know, relit that flame inside of me and I got going and sort of saw it with new eyes again. Yeah. I love that. The idea that you're so focused on the art of making ice cream and perhaps not on the art of hospitality. And in the second bite at the apple, you focused on both simultaneously. Yeah. You, it's a two-way conversation with your customers. You have to, as entrepreneurs or founders and, and makers and creators, we have to make something that drives us that we know we're good at. We have to keep pushing what's possible with that, which means a lot of failure too. But we also have to keep asking and listening and making things that we think people want. So it really is like a, it's that magic that gives you your opportunity. Yeah. And I think something that's just important to acknowledge, and this might be too soon to start thinking about for some people who have just closed a restaurant or their businesses, sometimes something does need to close in order for the thing you're actually meant to do for that to happen. And had Scream never closed, and for you, if you had never knocked on that scone or, or, or whatever, Jenny's would have never existed. And that's, that's exactly kind of right. And I remember thing. all of these people told me my first business will fail. That's just what happens. And I was like, yeah, but, you know, with other people, that's not going to happen here. We got a good <laughs> idea, you know, and of course it did, you know. And, um, you know, the other thing is if Scream had had like a maybe 50% more customers, right, we wouldn't have closed, but we also wouldn't have been a big success. You know what yeah. I mean? It's like, it's like we, you know, I don't know. I mean, we probably should have made that decision and eventually something would have happened that would have closed, you know, that would have made it obvious we need to restructure, we need to figure this out. But, um, you know, sometimes it's just like accepting that loss, that defeat. And then it allows you to sort of get to that sort of ground floor in order to either rebuild or just pivot, do something totally different. Yes. My dad, he has this thing, I say it all the time. And it's a quote that feels perhaps more relevant now than ever. He says, adversity is a terrible thing to waste. Mm -hmm. And then the next part of your story for me was like a beautiful embodiment of that. Okay, so you start Scream, you're working your ass off. It doesn't work. You decide to take a break. Then you finally get back up and running and now you're doing Jenny's and it's a more beautiful embodiment of your whole vision. And then you're starting to really like get some momentum. And then someone from either the health department or the department of agriculture comes and basically says, hey, you're not even allowed to do what you're doing. You don't have the license to do this. 
Can you talk about that for a sec? Yeah. I mean, how do you know all the things you're supposed to do? You know, I mean, I think that some of us maybe go research everything and get it all, you know, we all just do our best. And I just started and we just kept going. And I knew that when we started Jenny's that I was going to have to find customers outside of the market. So we're in an indoor public market, you know, 150 year old public market where, you know, they're selling fish and cheeses and fruits and flowers and chocolates and ice cream. And, um, you know, I knew that I couldn't just rely on the people walking by because I'd had that experience at Scream and it wasn't enough. I needed to get out of the market and actually do my part to bring people to the market, which meant maybe some wholesale and grocery, maybe working with chefs and, and restaurants. Um, and so I started doing that. Well, turns out uh, if you're going to, you know, if you're selling ice cream over the counter or a hamburger or anything that you make here, uh, edible, um, you can get by with your, your health department license. That's a local license, either a county or city license that you can get. You have an inspection once a year and it's usually a surprise. They walk in and just check a few things and you get your license. Um, but if you're going to sell it to somebody else to resell a restaurant to scoop or a store to sell in their freezers, then you go to a different level. Now you're governed by the ag department. That's a state institution, a organization. And in ice cream, you have to be licensed as a milk processor. So you can take in raw milk and process that. And that's how you can do all, you can pasteurize basically. So we had no idea how to get from our little market shop where we were making ice cream behind this, just out in the open and selling over the counter and packing it to then creating a production kitchen. But he gave us a year to do it, which is really probably the kindest anyone has ever been to me Mm. in my entire life. He was like, you know, you're going to have a year. And that was awesome because once you start to do the math backwards, you realize then we're going to have to open at least one more store. And so we put those two together as a bundle. And we were really afraid. This is in 2005. We opened our five, six, and we opened our second store and the kitchen in 2006. And so this was a little early, earlier than I wanted to grow, but we did it. And um, it was great. (laughs) I just think, I mean, that story I think has so much relevance to right now, obviously very different circumstances, but man, if I were in your position and that happened, I think a lot of people similarly would have just like been almost immobilized. That's a big deal. It's a ton of stuff that none of us understand how to do. You need a bunch more capital, all this stuff to literally just stay alive. But instead to the point of adversity being a terrible thing to waste, that resulted in your growth probably being accelerated in a way that it otherwise wouldn't have been. Yeah, and you know, we opened um, our first freestanding shop in a beautiful little neighborhood called Grandview here. It's a walkable neighborhood with restaurants and, the- and, an, old the- and an old theater and coffee shop. And it's a beautiful street. Actually, one of the oldest like shopping districts, maybe, I don't know, maybe in America or something like that, or you know, whatever, it was a planned shopping district or something. But anyway, it's beautiful little street kind of, it's gorgeous. And people live there and walk down there. Some of the storefronts had been like refinished in like the seventies. They were like stucco and just really kind of ugly. And I remember thinking, this is very likely not going to work for us. You know, nobody really knows who we are. We're over here. I've never seen it. I grew up in this neighborhood, so I've never seen a business succeed in this specific space. And I literally hadn't. Uh, it had been very many different businesses. So what we decided to do, what I decided to do is to take the storefront back and kind of redo it to match the sort of origins of the neighborhood. So we did this little jewel box front where you can sit in it with windows and then two doors and like that sort of menu yeah. boxes outside. And then we, as we dug down, we found an original floor, which we couldn't save, but we redid. And I just felt like telling the neighborhood, the story of the neighborhood would be a really wonderful way to connect with people and show people that we care. And 
that tiny little thing was so huge for the people who lived in that community. It was like, it just changed how people thought about, first of all, that space where we'd all seen, you know, the sandwich shop and the other ice cream shop and the tea shop and the over so many years, just not succeed to change the idea of what that space could be. And also, um, I don't know, to really connect people with us and our, our intention. I think those like details really mattered a lot. Well, you know, one of the things that someone the other day said to me, Kevin Bame from the Boca group, we were talking just about grit in this season in our collective experience. And he was talking about how he's just sick of playing defense and he wants to play offense again. And I think that story embodies it. Okay, we have to do this in order to actually stay alive. But not only are we going to do this to stay alive, we're going to lean in. And we're going to do something extraordinary and special in spite of circumstances. You know, uh, entrepreneurship is not a rational thing to do. It's an act of, you know, it's that. And it's also an act of rebellion. I mean, you see something wrong. And so you're going, you set out to make something new and different. So none of those things sound easy. Like that's some... Normal people don't do, not normal people, you know what I mean? It's not necessarily rational. This is all going to work out. We have to take these leaps of faith and then just trust, put some trust in the future and in our relationships. And there's a magic there. I think that you sort of end up trusting, but I do feel like so many of us founders and entrepreneurs are in that space where it just feels like, is this ever going to plateau? Is this ever going to feel like I'm not fighting? And then you finally get there and it feels like you're there for a day and the bottom (laughs) drops out again. You know what I mean? Or, you know, what happens is the rules change because now you've achieved some level of something and some rules somewhere change. Now you've got to learn them again. And um, it just feels like you're on this never anything, which I think that if you get used to the life and you've been in business long enough too, that like you kind of almost get used to that, which is also sort of that resilience grit thing that you end up feeling like, man, you know, if I don't have some challenge coming up soon, I'm going to get bored. I don't know. Like what's the catch here? What's happening? Yeah. Now, um, obviously existential challenges, you know, maybe once every uh, decade or something like that, or two decades, <laughs> hmm. keep those on the. Yeah. Heard. So, okay. And I promise you that my role in your life is not to just talk about every struggle you've faced in the course of your career, but I believe that our entire industry is facing unprecedented struggles and challenges and a there's catharsis and knowing that other people that we look up to have not only faced them, but survived through them. And there's obviously so many lessons you can learn from hearing someone's story. And so, okay, you open that store. Now you're starting to build like a pretty robust company. You're kind of crushing it, right? Like this is that plateau you're talking about. You have hundreds of employees, everyone in America is starting to like really connect with what you're doing. And then 2015 hits and you get a phone call. And I think this story is perhaps something that my hope is we can all kind of gain some hope from. Yeah, because no amount of prior experience, grit, resilience building that you can do can prepare you for a moment where you get the phone call saying that somebody that, uh, that they found listeria in your ice cream, somebody had it tested and it came back positive for listeria. Listeria can be very dangerous to people, especially people who are pregnant or older people. I mean, it's not something that you want to ever hear that you have product out there in the world that could be dangerous to people and could already have made people sick. This is a horrible call to get. So, yeah. So, I mean, it was an immediate, can you just, just real quick, Talk about the moment, like, talk about the moment when you heard that and the emotional 
response? So I was in a meeting, we were talking about packaging and we had like a new supplier coming in to show us some cardboard or something, you know? And I saw our CEO was next to me kind of like get a text or a call. And I saw, and I know him really well. We worked together for a long time. I know all of his facial expressions and I had never seen that one, but it was terrifying. Hmm. And so he walked out, but I, and I do not remember anything else that happened in that meeting. He walked out for maybe five minutes or so. And then I just had to like get out and go see what was going on. And I went and sat with him and he told me what was going on. And then from there on, it was, you know, we set up a war room. I mean, it was just a process. We set up, you know, we were there probably, I mean, from my face, my skin didn't see sunshine for at least six weeks, at least from that moment. I mean, I I went to my car, which is in a garage underneath our office, to my home garage and back. And we just hunkered down and like, you know, we immediately set up phone, a phone number and call lines. We worked on our recall. We were, you know, we recalled. 265 tons of ice cream. We weren't sophisticated enough to get, at least not quickly, we probably could have done it. Um, It would have taken a long time. We weren't sophisticated enough to do quickly to get to like directly which batch and isolate it and be sure that it wasn't in another batch. These are things that many companies have problems with, struggle with, and will still kind of string it out. Yes. We were just, you know, really afraid that, you know, somebody was going to get sick. And that's just obviously something that that was a, a line we could never cross. And so we made the decision, I think within 15 or 20 hours, all spent in the office after that call to not just recall all of our ice creams, all of it, close all of our stores, take everything back from buckets to pints, all of our retail partners, close down the website, everything. And also to create that plan for the FDA, because it takes sometimes a while to get this plan approved. You know, you're working sort of hand, hand in hand with them. So we had teams kind of working on everything just to get that done so that we could prevent an outbreak. The idea was we're not sure where this is, but wherever it is, we want it to stop now. And if we can prevent anyone from getting sick, that's the number one goal. And so we did that. And then, and then we did eventually, I mean, no one had gotten sick. There was never an outbreak. It was really just that one pint. And then from there we went and just had to figure out how to rebuild our company (laughs) because once we woke up from that moment, we realized that in doing the right thing, we really lost everything. I mean, we didn't have anything to go on. So it was April, we're coming out of winter and um, a lot of ice cream companies, you know, you barely get through winter and then you you have no cash. And so that was where we were and the clock I mean, started ticking. But it's, it's similar. I mean, you were one day, it's just, everything is great. And then the next day, literally the nozzle is just completely shut off and I mean, that's the mm-hmm. collective experience of the hospitality business right now with, yeah. honestly, even here in New York, January, February are two of the slowest months of the entire year. And you're just getting ramped up for a busy spring. And then, and then all of a sudden, yeah, you have nothing. I know. And my friend, Bobby, Bobby owns the hundreds, um, is one of the founders of the hundreds company. And I remember like days after COVID and everything, this shut down, all of everything, he said to me something, he's, I don't know, I just remember, and it was similar to when we were in the recall time, it doesn't matter what you have to do now, it's all about survival. If you have to have a sale every week, you know, usually in like retail, it's like you don't want to be known as the company with the sales because then you're known as the company with the sales and nobody will buy things at full price. But he's just like, all rules are out the, out the door until we get through this. And I thought that's exactly right. And it was really how we were thinking during that time too, because once we realized that like we had to survive, then it was well, who are we? Like, what do we have to be to be us? And what can we do right now to, sur- to survive this? I mean, it was a real, like, you know, look at 
what we really believe. And honestly, I think a lot of the stuff that we thought we believed just went out the door. You know, we came up with just a very few things. I mean, we know how to like make ice cream like other people in, in this really special way that only we do. And um, so that's important. But maybe where we make it is less important. So while our kitchen is being refinished, maybe we could work with one of the dairies here in Ohio, which actually turned out to be better because they have better equipment, like way better than we did. We never thought that you could make artisanal ice cream at someone else's dairy. Yes. You know, even though it's a fourth generation, amazing small dairy company. And so those little things that we had, ne we never would have thought about, we did. And it actually changed our company because we could really focus on quality and flavors and survival and not focus on just the incredible amount of effort that it takes to understand safety and um, to do that. So we, you know, so we made decisions that, um, that I think we never would have made before and actually got better in the process. Well, you said something the other day and you articulated it beautifully. So I'm going to butcher it and then maybe you can do it the right way again. But in that season, you found yourself like caring a lot about the things you care about and not at all about the things you don't. What, how did you say it? Oh, I don't give a shit about shit. I don't give a shit about. Yeah. In other words, <laughs> yes. There it is. That's the more way. <laughs> I care very deeply about a few things. And that's it. Like that's sometimes you just have to put those blinders on and understand what those things are. And like, and that's it. But like, I say it all the time. I don't give a shit about shit. I don't give a shit about. And it's just like my like mantra that I have going on because there's a lot you can swirl about, you know, just there's so much that will take your attention away. And really, if you want to, I mean, if you want to really do something effectively, it's, you just have to be able to focus. And especially of course, when you're in crisis and trying to survive and keep the jobs and keep paying people and all of that. And so you just have to like, just stay super focused. Now, when you're in super crisis, a lot of times your body doesn't let you get distracted. I mean, even things like I remember, and even actually during some of the COVID time when it was really uncertain, and I know that, you know, it kind of goes in and out now for us, and I know everybody's kind of in a different place with this, but um, uh, during the recall, and actually sometimes this year, I couldn't see color or taste things. So I couldn't like, I wasn't able to like find pleasure in the leaves that were coming in on the trees. I knew that they were there. I could see that they were there, but it was like almost like the world was black and white to me. And I knew that that was because my body, my whole body was helping me focus on what I needed to focus on and getting everything else off the table for now. And that it would come back later when I could make use of it again. That's really interesting. Well, yeah. And I think we're all learning a lot of lessons through this experience personally and professionally. I think for me personally, it's to that same point, like even the people in my life, like caring more about less people and investing more deeply in relationships and not being so pulled in so many different directions, but and focused is probably the best way to articulate it. So in 2015, what did you decide to give a shit about? Like what were the things that you focused on to get you through it? Because by the way, Spoiler alert, you're a bigger, more successful, more beloved company now than you were before that. And so not only did you rebuild, but you built bigger and stronger. And so 
How? What was the? Yeah, and I want to be clear that this has been. We're a creative company, so we make it look like it's. Um, you know what it's like to be in a company. It's like kind of sometimes like utter chaos behind the scenes. Sometimes, I mean, sometimes it's it's smooth, but but we always make it look like we intended it to be this way or whatever. You know, <laughs> you'll get like some deadline pushed or whatever, and it'll just it's all fine. We'll just make it. It'll be fine. So, but it was a multi-year process, really, to get to the point where we felt like we weren't suffering in some way from some residual effect from this, whether it was our production capabilities or being able to use an ingredient that we were always using, but we couldn't now or, or whatever. So we just had to kind of freestyle our way and keep nimble and keep creative and figuring out how to create within that new system. And so for us, I think the things that were the most important were that, I mean, the recipe for our ice cream was really important. So we could not be a company that suddenly started using stabilizers and emulsifiers and working with flavorings. That's totally fine. And I eat all sorts of ice creams, but like, that's just not what we're here to do. And I think that those already exist. And so we had to kind of draw the line. Like we have to be able to use real ingredients. We have to be a fellowship. We have to be working with our makers, growers, and suppliers and producers, the the same ones that we've been working with that we have this, we actually talk about it as a fellowship, this idea truly from Lord of the Rings that everybody brings their awesomeness in and together we make something greater than some of its parts. That's Mike and his family growing our strawberries for us. They've grown them for 15 years and like, we're not going to turn our backs on them now because it would have been way too easy for us to do that. I mean, honestly, bringing in produce from the dirt is one of the most dangerous things you can do directly into an ice cream kitchen. So these are things we learned. So we had to figure out how are we going to get his strawberries to somebody else to wash them and take the tops off of them you know, so that they're safe to bring into the ice cream environment. So we had to work out all of those things, but we made it our priority that we're going to work with Mike, which meant maybe that year or for a couple of days, we only had five flavors that season instead of 25. But, you know, understanding what we were here to do, and that is just, you know, this recipe and to operate as a fellowship and do that through the the lens of service. And so for us, that was how else we do it is fine. So what we ended up doing is changing our kitchen. So we have a production kitchen. Once it did get back online a few months later, we found like like a hairline fracture in the cement under the sink, which was where just like a tiny bit of listeria would get through. So we found that thankfully, because it's like a ghost in your kitchen, it's a horrible thing to have to, but we also created a um, process where like we're testing every single, to this day, we test every single batch that goes out and we are testing all throughout, we're just swabbing our kitchen all the time. I mean, every single day um, and sending out swabs of the kitchen, you know, from the kitchen. So we are very aware of what's going on there, but we turned our production kitchen into a place where we could make anything that somebody else couldn't make better right? So our marshmallows, our pralines, our caramelizing sugar, you know, that's just not something that somebody else is going to be able to do for us. So we have our copper kettles with some fire there and um, we make that. And then we take that to the dairy and turn it into ice cream. So we just kind of rearranged how we do things, but with this idea of like, but who are we and how can we do what we need to do now within that? Okay. So you, I have so many questions. Okay. So were there things that you cared about or that you thought you cared about before that experience that you realized weren't important to you? Well, actually a lot. I mean, so we had been in business for a while. And so it was me and our CEO, John Lowe, and then my husband, Charlie, and then his brother, my brother-in-law, Tom, who worked in our company at the time and, and various other people. Some of them had been our company for a long time. And I swear we all had kind of pet projects, you know, I'm working with the museum. They were working with, you know, the sports coalition. And, you know, I mean, literally we just have like, I don't know, maybe dozens of programs and things that we're doing. We're really stretched, kind of going different ways. We're not really communicating all that well. You know, it looks like we're doing great because you can see our logo on different stuff because everybody kind of got their like thing going on. 
but really we weren't using our resources to the most of their potential, right? And didn't realize it, just felt like we were all doing great stuff. And so all of that went away. So if you think about it, we sort of almost got like flabby, like sloppy in the way that we were doing it. It was just like, everybody's, you know, we didn't know where everything was going. So once we went through that and shed everything, and now we're only doing what we absolutely have to, we are literally here to survive. Nothing else goes out this door. No dollar goes out the door. You know, this is what we exist to do. Then we got to build back up from there in a way that was strategic. And that made so much difference. You just don't realize how much is just flowing out just from every point in your company until you take absolute stock of what you have. And uh, that gave us a chance to do that. And I think like you would never wish this kind of devastation on anyone you know, and not even on your you know worst enemy or whatever. And yet you will never do this to yourself. Like you will never actually shed all of that stuff. You'll never be, take the ax as far as it needs to go, right? Mm-hmm. To yourself. You know, because you can always justify, but when you're only here for survival, it actually is really cleansing, like fire cleansing, right? And so then when you get back to it, you get to pick and choose and you realize um, how precious every single resource is. And then that's where strategy comes from. And that's when you can begin to use every moment you're at your, you know, of your time, your talent, all of your budget to the best effect. And then that's where you see over these last five years, we've been able to just be so direct and pointed that we've been able to grow as this wonderful team just from the middle of Ohio doing our best, you know? By the way, I think that's like a part of our industry, the restaurant business, like it's become so celebrated and such a big part of pop culture that I think so many people are presented with so many cool things that honestly can be distracting. And I think that's a hopeful outcome for all of us is to cut the fat a little bit and to refocus on the very things that got us to want to do this in the first place. Yeah. Sometimes just getting away can do that too. We give everybody uh, Jenny's sabbatical. If you work for three years, you get a month off. And so we have found even that if you can get away for a month, you know, you can focus on, it helps you start to focus. You don't get the same like crisis kind of shedding, but you know, just being able to do that regularly is important, I think. So then the other thing, the testing that you're doing every single day around the kitchen, every single batch. I mean, in many ways, that's kind of what we're looking at now as an industry is the amount Mm -hmm. of systemizing testing, which that is going to have to happen in order to create safe environments that people feel comfortable going to. I mean, it feels completely impossible to achieve and unbelievably overwhelming. Is that how it felt for you when you realized what was ahead? Yes, it felt exactly like that. It's it's like, I would say it's super hard to explain, except yes, we are here right now. It felt like there is no way that we will be able to make an ice cream company that we can guarantee, or even a food company is safe. I mean, unless we end up doing hospital food, right? How are we going to be able to do this? So it was, well, we are either going to die right now and that'll be the end of us. That's fine. We go do something else or we're going to try right? And so we chose to try and we're just going to do it. And it was just little bits at a time. It's extremely expensive. We weren't sure how we were going to pay for it, but we also knew that if we could figure it out, we were going to do something awesome. And so we did, we hired just an incredible team to help us figure out how to be, you know, with a mission. I like to like start projects with missions, but we are, our mission was how do you make the safest ice company in the United States? Given the idea that we're going to be working with fresh strawberries and um, things directly from farms So how do we do that and also have this 
you know, this sort of, and we're going to be incredible quality and we're also going to be with absolute safety. In fact, safety might be a little higher than quality because it's that important. And so anyway, so it was just working back with it because it's really not just um, our testing. It's also testing we're doing at the farms. And so we have to get our farmers and makers and growers to come with us because some of that stuff has to happen on their end. They've got to have paperwork for every batch. They've got to have tests for every batch of goat cheese or whatever. And so we had to do a lot to get them to come along. I mean, these are not easy Yes. Easy things necessarily to change, but there was just a lot, there were a lot of details and uh, took a lot of management, a lot of redirecting resources to achieve that. But in the end, it was of course the right thing to do. And now we can kind of show how it's done, you know what I mean, to the world. And something that felt completely overwhelming and and perhaps impossible at the time. Now, five years later. It feels like every day. This yeah. is what we do. This is why we exist. This is the reason for us to exist is to make this incredible ice cream safely, you know? Yes. Mm -hmm. I love that idea of making it a part of the mission as opposed to just something annoying that you have to do in order to pursue the mission. Because once it's part of the mission, you approach it with just as much creativity as you do what's going to go in the ice cream itself. Yeah. And maybe you have to give up things this year, but that's where vision is so important. So maybe I'm only able to like make five flavors this year, or I can't do the other project I wanted to do. Well, that's fine. You just put that on your vision, you know, in your scope and you just keep marching forward. This is the most important thing we can do this year and always understand, you know, what you're trying to do and keep going forward that, you know, those tiny baby steps are so important. Okay. My last question about that experience is, was there a moment that you just wanted to quit? where you were over it? Yeah, I mean, there were a lot of moments. I remember I kept a journal, like a Google Doc, um, that I just kept adding to every day during the time, especially in the, actually through the whole thing. For the first several months, I remember the feeling of not having any idea of how to save our company. Like there was probably several weeks. It was like, I remember thinking that it was like, I'd been walking on a path and suddenly the path in front of me disappeared, almost like a bridge, it fell. And then I look backward to go back and there was no path in the back either. It was almost like my future, everything I had worked on in my past was irrelevant. And now this future that I'd always imagined that I'd never even doubted was not in front of me anymore. And so I was like hanging in this, like in my mind, I mean, I remember it's like this vacuum, this like negative space, this like outer space, you know, with no ideas, nothing to grab onto, no hope, nothing. And I remember thinking like, okay. And I wrote it like, one day some spark is going to float by my vision and I'm going to grab onto it with everything I have. And it's going to take me somewhere. Just one, it's going to take me to even just something that's going to help me get to the next place. And that's exactly what eventually happened. I mean, I, I don't remember what that exact spark was, but you know, it was, it was just the tiniest thing. But I remember there was emptiness for quite a while where it was like uncertainty and that despair that you feel in that place is horrible. And yet at the same time at our company, we had a lot of people, we have a lot of people, we have hundreds of people who we never laid off anyone. You know, we knew that if we went, if we just went bankrupt or something like that, all of those people would lose their jobs. And, you know, so there was always that reason to keep fighting until it was absolutely over until it killed me basically. But you know, there was, it, it was definitely like a, you're sort of almost living in the spiritual realm. When you get into crisis, you're no longer sort of attached to earth. You're just in that other place. And I, and things just work differently there, I think. And well, and you had faith. You just believed that this thing was going to come across and you just held mm -hmm. on and waited for it. And 
there's something self-fulfilling about that in a beautiful way. So one thing that I did, and I've recommended this to other people who've been in crisis, because now people sometimes reach out to me and I can help sort of walk other business owners or chefs or people who've had this kind of struggle in their businesses. One thing I said that I did, one tactic or whatever, was that I remember thinking, okay, next May, that would have been May 2016, get that in my scope and whatever I will be then will be better than what it is now. Like I will have some kind of plan. Like it may not be easy what's going on, but I will at least have a plan or I will at least know I will have a new vision of the future, you know? And so I think for me, that date became like the thing that I was marching toward. That was my sort of hope. And whenever any other sort of emotions or thoughts would come into my head or, or, or that sort of ultra despair, I would just focus on, I think it was like May 15th or something like that. Um, hmm. getting to that place. And of course I got there and yes, it was true. Okay. It does feel a lot better. I mean, we still had so much going on, so much to deal with. And my story, my personal story was so wrapped up in the idea of Listeria too. So every time I would leave my house, people would talk to me about it. And like, you know, I still had a lot to overcome, but I had a plan and I wasn't just floating in outer space anymore. And you're almost breaking up the path towards recovery. That's maybe not the right word, but into more palatable bites. You're saying, okay, I'm going to get yeah. there. And then once I get there, then I'm going to go from there. I love that. That's really great advice yep. for people right now. You will get to one year from now and uh, it's going to be faster than you think. And your plan will be slightly more, you'll be more focused that you'll know something then that you don't know now. So everything that you learned about dealing with that adversity then, how has that helped you deal with this year? Because everyone's experience this year is different, but everyone's been impacted, right? And so. Well, it was, you know, I mean, like anybody, it was very hard earlier in this year, especially when it felt like we had no, I mean, even now we don't have like a great understanding of what the future is going to look like. We don't have a way of saying, okay, great. The vaccine's going to be available on this day. And then there's going to be that or, or, you know, or whatever. There's not leadership helping us understand how to make a plan. So that's always really hard. But at least now we've had months of that. So we can kind of look to each other and sort of formulate ours. And, you know, now we're sort of like, okay, well, we sort of at least get what's going on here a little bit. But in those first months or weeks, that was really hard too, because the bottom just kept falling out. We just really didn't know how far down this was going to go, where it was going to go. So there was just no way to make a plan. I mean, even a plan of how do we keep customers safe in our shop when no one knows what's going to happen with COVID, you know, or with, you know, mask wearing or, you know, aerosolized droplets or whatever it is, you know? So I think that in the very, very early days, you know, we felt very much back in that place of uncertainty and even, even now, but especially then. And what we did, what we did was we did what we did in the recall, which is to bring together like a, a council, a group of our top sort of people, not just the, our leaders, but maybe one level below them too. So we have some communication people, our leaders, our finance, you know, chief finance officer and all of the people. And then we meet every single day at noon. We've done this for now since whenever that was, February or May or whatever, February or March, I mean. So that's not common for us. We'll meet once a week or once every two weeks, but this is an everyday thing because we don't know, you know, what's going on in Atlanta right now or what's going on in Chicago right now. And so we need to be really able to be flexible on that and figure out, uh, what we need to do to keep customers and our team safe. We also changed our mission really for the first time in history. I mean, we did change our mission when we had the recall, which was to, you know, for safety 
but kind of felt like that kind of ro- rolled into our other mission. It's just this basic idea of we're going to make better ice creams every day. We're going to get better at what we do every day. And we're going to do it because we bring people together. Ice cream brings people together and we're going to bring people together in the way that we make it. And those are kind of the two sides of our mission, that the sort of way we work together and the reason we do it. After COVID, we changed that to um, two missions, which is to keep everyone safe, to keep our team safe, to keep our customers safe, no matter what. That's number one. And then number two is survival. And so now we're, um, you know, we're just doing whatever we can to kind of meet those two things. And then after we do that, then we can kind of float everything else. So I think that refocusing mission is equally as important, I guess, as it was during that time of the recall in 2015, so that you can focus all of your resources on that and like nothing else. One thing that's a little bit better about now is that we kind of are all in this together. So there is a little bit more of that trust of we're in it together. We can lean on each other. We understand what we're going through. We can help each other. We can share resources. And we understand so that if something, you know, if somebody closes something or doesn't open, I mean, so many places, well, maybe we reopen the next year and we're all kind of on that, you know, we, we get it. Or we're doing more sales than we used to, or we're changing or pivoting, we're doing whatever. Like we all kind of get it. We understand that if you try something today and it doesn't work, there's much more forgiveness for, you know, yes. these ideas. There's also a lot of opportunity here too. So, you know, the idea that we've sped up our, innovation by however many years, five years or 10 years or something like that, you know, there's some exciting opportunities happening as well. And No, for sure. Well, what I love what you said, I've seen so many companies where the person or people in charge have been so overwhelmed with uncertainty that they've actually stopped communicating with their teams and their teams have drifted apart. And I've seen so many beautiful teams just dissolve over the past five months And rather than doing that, you ran in the opposite direction where it was almost like, okay, it's the solidarity of my team that's going to get me through this. And not only am I going to not let it dissolve, but we're going to meet even more often and we're going to get through it together. Um, Yeah, because it's that idea of fellowship again. It's just like this is, you know, this idea that like everybody's got their awesomeness and we need all of us because this is, we're not all, I'm not an expert in what Dan's doing or Poe or Zoe or whoever else, you know. And so we need everyone's opinion and we need their awesomeness, their expertise on this team. And then we're going to solve all these. We're going to look at all of the data. We're going to communicate. We're going to all be on the same page about everything. We're going to make decisions together. And then we're going to go out and execute. And we're going to keep talking about how it's working. But I think that no communication one person, is the most important. Yeah. And then no one person feels the burden of feeling like they need to have all the answers during a time when it's impossible for any one person to have all the answers. Yep. And it's, uh, it, you know, you're sort of disrupted a little bit. Things are a little different. So you're also feeling like, and hopefully we do this anyway, but like you're feeling like, you know, all ideas are good ideas, which that's kind of how we are anyway. But I mean, in like hyper mode, you know, you're just really bringing it in because you know that this is about survival. It's not just about doing the next blockbuster or whatever. So you get on this more rapid communication yes. kind of style or something. Well, hey, I don't want to take up too much more of your time. I'm so appreciative of you spending time with us. I think that hearing your story is life-giving and hope-giving, honestly, to say, okay, you know what? Things go wrong, and if you stay in the game and if you have faith, they can end up going right again, perhaps in a different way and perhaps in a much better way. And I know you have a ton of friends in the industry that are going to be listening to this and I guess for everyone out there that's listening to this, that's wondering how we get out of this mess or whether we can get out of this mess, how we rebuild something better than we had before. Just what's the big takeaway? What's the one thing that you would want people to take away from this conversation? I mean, I just think that you will get through it. 
you will get through it. Next year will come along. And I think it helped me when I, when I realized that my, you know, I'm not just making ice creams, I'm making resilience. I mean, I realized that at some point early on in my life and I became proud of the hard stuff of getting through the hard stuff. It became part of my like sense of pride as to who I am. And that makes it easier. You know, this is what I'm good at. This is what I've worked for. I don't always have all the answers, but we're going to just do something today that feels right. And over time it'll add up and we're going to get, we will get through it. And it's something that you'll always have, you know, is that grit and resilience that you built this year. It ends up being another incredible accomplishment out of a season of yes, exactly. incredible adversity. Hey, yeah, you are exactly. amazing. And I appreciate you so much. And I can't wait to the other side of this so that we can do this in person. Yes. Oh, me too. So, so much. Thank you so much for joining us. And a special thanks to the incredibly generous sponsors who give us the resources to not only create this content, but to deliver it to you. Perhaps the greatest gift is that they've given us the opportunity to connect with you here, even during a season when we're unable to connect with you in person. Those are our friends and partners at American Express, at Resi, and at Sam Pellegrino. We appreciate you all so much. That catchy music you hear, that's by our friend Aaron Ratier. He's amazing. Check him out. And to the team at the Welcome Conference, who's been working so hard this year. Obviously, Anthony Rudolph and Brian Canlis, who you see alongside me on stage. But then Aaron Ginsberg, who's been running the show with a ton of support by Sandra DiCapua. There's a lot to be thankful for, even during a time that feels so challenging. We look forward to seeing you back here next week. And if you want to check up on us and see what we're up to, go to welcomeconference.org. It's the weekly special. You 